Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheesman, a research fellow at the Australian National University. Today I'm talking with Sopal Ear, an Associate Professor of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College, California, about his 2013 book, Aid Dependence in Cambodia. How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy, published by Columbia University Press. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. So, this book is as much the result of a personal journey, a family struggle for survival, as it is a case study of Cambodia as a laboratory for international donors' experiments, as you put it. Before we go into the contents of the book itself, can you please tell us a little bit about that journey? Well, I was born in Cambodia just before the Khmer Rouge took power in uh, April 75. So I was born in December 1974. Well, we don't exactly know when. A lot of Cambodians don't have their precise birth dates. Um, but, uh, yeah, one of five kids and uh, my mother and father and siblings and I were all sent to the countryside. We were Phnom Penh uh, dwellers and probably the enemies, most likely the very enemies of the Khmer Rouge in terms of living bourgeois lives and such. Um, and um, sent to Persat province where uh, we had no relatives and no knowledge of the environment. Um, and my mom was essentially uh, made, my, both my parents were made to work the, the country uh, side uh, rice fields when one day uh, the Khmer Rouge cadres told them, told the entire commune that that uh, Cambodians would be allowed, well, yeah, sorry, Vietnamese would be allowed to leave Cambodia. This was a, an amazing uh, sort of moment because uh, at that time I think Pol Pot was, was too busy with uh, internal struggles and such to uh, pay much attention to what was going on with the Vietnamese, they weren't yet at war with Vietnam. And uh, if it had happened later, it would have been a trap. But at that moment, it was actually a, an opportunity. And my mom had uh, many Vietnamese uh, friends as a child had picked up some Vietnamese language and thought she could uh, pretend to be Vietnamese. And uh, my dad didn't speak a word of Vietnamese. So they signed up. It took several months to even get called uh, for that journey, but when the journey began, my father passed away from dysentery and uh, um, malnutrition. Uh, so he, uh, the problem that would have presented itself had he actually lived would have been, how would he have passed? So now my mom and five kids are off to, uh, to the border with Vietnam, um, and they're just tested by Marish Cadres passes and then has to take another exam to get across to Vietnam, but this one administered by Vietnamese cadres, communist cadres. And um, she's, uh, her Vietnamese is actually very basic. She'd learned it in, in the marketplace with her friends and as a, as a young girl. And um, it was so bad, in fact, that she gave, uh, she, she had being a good Vietnamese or portraying a good Vietnamese had given all the children new names, Vietnamese names, but her Vietnamese was bad because she'd given the boys girls' names and the, uh, bo- and, the, and, and, the, and the boys girls' names. So she had reversed all the genders. And it was a Vietnamese lady that um, explained to her this little problem and tutored her for the next couple of days. And she was able to pass as a result of that. And my siblings and I uh, and were able to get to Vietnam um, as a result of my mom's uh, heroic actions. Um, then onwards, uh, and it's a long story, I won't get into too many details, but uh, after two years in Vietnam, onwards to France as Cambodian refugees, 
And as immigrants to the U.S., uh, at least for three of the kids, two were already adults and stayed in France. Uh, but three of the kids, <clears throat> including myself, obviously, got to the U.S. And my mom was able to live a, a new life in America uh, beginning in 1985 until she passed away in um, 2009 after I had the opportunity to thank her on, on a stage at the TED conference for what she'd done. Um, so it was, it's, uh, I, th I think it, it really anchors sort of my raison d'etre, uh, this uh, belief that I was given an opportunity to live, uh, thanks to her actions, thanks to the actions of strangers throughout uh, my life and hers, and and that I should uh, try as much as possible to to give back to the country of my birth uh, to help uh, Cambodia develop uh, and and essentially be democratic as much as it can be. So why did you concentrate on international aid or international development projects? Well, I'd worked for the World Bank um, for three years, uh, seeing up close the effects of, of, a, of a donor uh, like the bank. Um, and, and then I, I spent a year in East Timor working for the UN Development Program. And it gave me a chance to kind of examine the, uh, the way in which development works. Um, development, uh, it's interesting. I, when I was a grad student at, at Berkeley doing my PhD, I kind of assumed that development was always a good thing. And of course, you know, what does development mean in the first place? I had a professor there, uh, Jim Robinson, who um, is now at Harvard, who, uh, who, who, who said, for example, at one point that uh, when speaking with a Cambodian villager uh, near Sihanoukville, that for this villager, development meant uh, they build a road and take my land away. Uh, but that's that's really the extreme, and that's, that's sort of the problems with, um, with development uh, aid that I was trying to get at. Like, how can development sometimes have negative consequences? How can um, good intentions uh, lead to disaster? And, and I guess I was trying to see, having observed um, donors operate in Cambodia, I was trying to determine how perhaps uh, the outcomes I'd found in my dissertation about, uh, you know, looking at the relationship between aid and various dimensions of governance, uh, how aid might affect negatively the rule of law, for example, um, could play out in Cambodia. And, uh, and it's just a case study, certainly, of, of looking after having seen, uh, after having done large and sort of uh, statistical analysis to then see whether one can find the possible mechanism by which aid could hurt um, certainly one dimension of governance and, and possibly others. I mean, we're constantly told of the stories of um, how, you know, aid can be used for corruption, aid can siphon resources from the public sector in terms of human resources, good people who, who would have worked <coughs> to uh, help their governments instead are, are sucked into the aid industrial complex. Um, and, uh, and certainly in the case of Cambodia, how aid uh, manifested itself in, in the situation with uh, bird flu, avian influenza, how it's been seen as um, uh, uh, counterproductive in the uh, case of Bangkok Lake, the lake that was purchased by a Chinese firm uh, headed by a, a Cambodian senator of the ruling party and then filled in um, while the World Bank at that time was doing uh, land titling around Phnom Penh and was somehow duped into not giving land titles to the people around the lake, for example. So sometimes, um, you know, development projects that um, intend to do well can be captured by, by the authorities and turned to their purposes, basically used to steal land from people uh, to uh, <clears throat> appropriate uh, resources that, that aren't theirs because they can suddenly grab them.
we'll come to some of those specific examples that you've offered momentarily. But before we do that, I'd like to go into books, contents with a more general question, and that is sure. thinking about what you've just said in, on critiques of international development projects. Uh, the, the, the critiques of such projects are not new since the 1990s. Certainly they've been abundant. So, so why did you need to write this book in particular, aside from its manifest importance to you as a Cambodian? What does right. the case study of Cambodia bring to the larger discussion about the problems of aid and its delivery? Well, I think uh, Cambodia, uh, when assessed uh, as, a, as an example of, of a post-conflict country that received, at least in the early 90s, uh, the largest peacekeeping, UN peacekeeping mission in, in the organization's history, you know, what was essentially the impact of that um, two to three billion dollar US dollar uh, peacekeeping mission? How, how, were the, how can it be sort of evaluated from the standpoint of, um, you know, how did, what did the UN do from the beginning that might have set Cambodia on a course for uh, the outcomes uh, one observes now? Um, so, you know, in the overall picture, I, I, I see it as a contribution to, to the study of, of post-conflict countries, of which there are quite a number now, um, and, uh, and also to see uh, I guess, you know, how, how a country becomes normal. So one of the interesting things that a, a friend of mine who served at the U.S. Embassy would say was uh, essentially that Cambodia was becoming a normal country. Um, and, and by normal, I think he meant normal in the sense of like every other developing country, uh, which is to say with all the attendant problems of developing countries, um, the lack of uh, resources, financial and human, uh, the, uh, the, the, the corruption that, it, that comes with, uh, with a lot of that development aid and, and with uh, the resources that, that come with uh, investors who, who see opportunities but also want to obtain unfair advantages once in country. Um, and, uh, and perhaps to use that as a case study for, for Myanmar, for example. So I got the chance a couple of years ago to meet Aung San Suu Kyi and to give her a copy of the book. Um, and uh, she was very grateful. She said that uh, Myanmar needed, uh, well, she, of course she said Burma, uh, needed to, uh, to, um, to learn from Cambodia's experience because, because uh, after all, uh, she, she wanted to avoid the problems of Cambodia, problems which are, I think, well-recognized problems having to do with how a, uh, the same prime minister has continued to, uh, to rule the country since 1985, uh, 30 years uh, this year, uh, anniversary, and, and um, the longest non-monarch in Southeast Asia, really. So uh, I, don't, I don't think uh, Burma is on track for that quite yet, but, but there's, there's, there's a lot that can be avoided. Things like... Um, you know, what Cambodia did with the, its garment sector, uh, what worked, what didn't, and why. And, and perhaps, you know, now that uh, uh, Myanmar is, is obtaining its own garment sector, you know, where it should go from there, you know, how, how uh, monitoring and evaluation and, and, and checking of, of factories and, and our labor standards could help that country perhaps avoid the problems of Bangladesh, for example, which has suffered with the, uh, the collapse of uh, Rana Plaza, uh, killing thousands. Um, you know, this, this, is an, uh, this, is, this is really, I think, an opportunity to learn from Cambodia's experience. Let's go into some of the problems in, in more detail. You have four chapters in the book that... Uh, substantive contents are concentrated in. The first chapter begins by asking the, the question, does aid make government or, or governance worse? Uh, what, what was the answer that you obtained to that question in the case of Cambodia and how did you arrive at that answer? Right. Well, first, I, 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 it's not apparent. Uh, in, I spared the reader all the tables, but I, I ran all of uh, the data I could at the time 
from the World Bank and, and the OECD on, on foreign aid and then using uh, the governance indicators of the World Bank across six dimensions, you know, control of corruption, regulatory quality, um, uh, rule of law, among others, and, and try to, to tease out a relationship globally, uh, not necessarily with Cambodia. And that's where... Uh, there was a uh, this, with all kinds of controls and, and, and methods uh, there seemed to be a, a negative relationship that persisted between aid and, uh, and rule of law uh, and in the case of Cambodia I tried to, to hone in a bit more and try to figure out what might be causing if there is in fact a global uh, negative relationship between aid and, and the rule of law how, how that might uh, be happening. So uh, I looked at uh, the possibility that you know laws could be written in ways that uh, end up uh, not benefiting uh, those uh, whom it intend- for whom the law intends to help. Uh, so you know, if you are doing land titles, for example, could you end up having a law that? essentially uh, gives the land, the land title itself to the wrong party, to the party that is in power or to, the, to its cronies, for example. Um, and, and certainly in the case of Cambodia, there's, there's evidence to suggest that the authorities have been very good at manipulating donors. So uh, it's certainly in, the, in, 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 in that instance what I mentioned earlier about Bangkok Lake. In, a, in another case, uh, or... In, in, in another sort of way that I, I try to display the, the astuteness of the authorities in Cambodia, um, I, I track, for example, the, the amount of um, uh, the levels of, of, of commitments that donors have given to Cambodia, despite, you know, annual sort of complaints about uh, corruption in Cambodia, lack of reform in Cambodia, and so on, lack of results. And yet they would give more than the authorities asked for, which was obviously a signal that then the authorities could then play up and say, you know, uh, look, we asked for 500 million, but we got 600 million. Or we asked for, you know, 700 million and got 800 million. Um, ways in which they can signal that kind of, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, approval of, the, of, of their actions. Um, I think that, that, that generally, you know, the the uh, the country I, the the data that I uh, point to is uh, of high of relatively high aid dependence. So what do I mean by that? Um, from two thousand two to two thousand ten, the uh, support uh, the, the the level of aid, uh, the proportion of aid of net official uh, development assistance relative to uh, to gov to government budget was ninety. 4.3%, if I'm correct, uh, averaging over those, um, those eight years. Um, and that's basically saying that for every dollar the government of Cambodia spent, it received nearly a dollar in foreign aid, uh, which, which I think is, is really a testament to, to, uh, to how a country, even a decade plus removed from uh, you know, uh, coming back into the international community uh, c- could still be seen as, as needing uh, high levels of foreign aid. This is a country that at that time was growing at nearly, uh, you know, seven plus percent per year. I mean, uh, depending on when you start the clock, possibly even double digits. Um, so, you know, high, high growth, high levels of aid coinciding with, with uh, that growth. So, uh, you know, one would think, that there would be a lower dependence on, on foreign aid. And there, there's certainly a weaning off. I mean, the Cambodian economy is growing rapidly. It isn't in need in as much, you know, the proportion of aid is smaller relative to, to GDP. Uh, but, um, but it's still a very large amount of aid coming to Cambodia, um, despite, you know, protestations from donors that Cambodia is often doing the wrong thing or not paying enough attention or taking years to pass, even decade plus to pass an anti-corruption law, for example. Who is giving all of this aid and, and for what are they giving it? Right. So, you know, you've got Japan as, as the usual, you know, large donor, but of course, increasingly China is by far the biggest donor now. It's, 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 
It's come in uh, as kind of behemoth uh, in 1997 when the uh, when when the ruling uh, parties uh, uh, the ruling party had a uh, undertook its what can't otherwise what, what uh, you know has to be called a coup d'état really in July of 97. Um, this was a, a kind of experiment in cutting off aid. So as a protest, lots of donors suspended their aid packages. And, and the authorities at that point learned to diversify uh, because they realized that they couldn't depend on Western donors who could coordinate their actions and say, okay, Cambodia, you've had a coup. We're not going to continue giving you the same level of aid. We're going to suspend uh, the money. And, and um, as a result, the authorities kind of opened up to, you know, China, uh, Definitely endorsing that you know one state uh, uh, policy uh, and 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 not recognizing Taiwan uh, and as a result uh, coming into favor with China and uh, receiving uh, in ever increasing uh, amounts of aid and I think the the real example of that commitment was in I believe it was in December of 2009, when Xi Jinping came to uh, Cambodia, and the day before, 20 Uyghurs were sent back to China. 20 Uyghurs tried to seek asylum, uh, well, see, you know, to be declared refugees by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and who instead were, were put on a chartered jet and uh, taken, brought back to China and haven't been since heard from. Uh, but Xi Jinping arrived in Siem Reap. Cambodia the day after and signed, if I recall correctly, something like $1.2 billion in uh, aid and investment um, for Cambodia. So it was a, a, a clear signal of, uh, <clears throat> of a kind of quid pro quo. And then, of course, you know, later in 2012, uh, Cambodia chaired ASEAN and, uh, and became a kind of spokesperson for China. I mean, it, it took China's position on the South China Sea um, in its November 2012 uh, meeting, it even used the word uh, inter- did not, that you know, ASEAN did not want to internationalize the South China Sea dispute, which was a, a literal word from the playbook of, of, uh, of the Chinese uh, authorities uh, at that point. The spokesperson for China at that point had used that term. So... Um, so, you know, China, China is, is undisputably the biggest player. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't behave transparently with respect to how much aid it gives. There are lots of numbers thrown around, but, um, but it clearly has um, uh, walked in with deep pockets. And uh, as the African proverb uh, goes, uh, when uh, your hand is in another man's pocket, you must walk where he walks. You conducted a perception survey on the quality of governance and success or failure in aid delivery. Can you explain what that survey was about and what your findings were? Right. Well, I was trying essentially to target people who were uh, deeply involved in, um, in, in, in development work in Cambodia and, and, and essentially to, to assess uh, the success of the failure of of uh, of the of of aid in Cambodia, so I was trying to uh, obtain from them a sense of how much um, of of what worked and what didn't. And one of the interesting aspects, of course, was that essentially, um, you know, there was a sense that um, that political stability. You know, there was the, the, the political stability had been helped in Cambodia over the years, and and that's an obvious, uh, I think, uh, artifact of the of the prime minister not having changed really. I mean, this is the same person in charge for uh, now three decades, but at that time it was it wasn't quite uh, three decades, and and so um, so a, a medium, you know, sixty seven uh, percent of informants. Uh, rated it as, as, as medium to very high in terms of political stability. The, the areas where there was really very little success were 
um, rule of law and control of corruption. Uh, control of corruption enjoying about 7% of uh, medium to very high rank. Um, and then rule of law, about 12%. Yeah, so everything else is, is uh, either uh, is, is none to poor uh, or uh, it doesn't, doesn't really add up to quite the, uh, the level of, of, um, of support or rather success that, that uh, informants saw in, uh, <clears throat> in that specific dimension of governance as a result of, uh, of donor success. Um, and and you, can, you can kind of see that. I mean, uh, you know, control of corruption. Cambodia ranks as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. It, it, it perennially ends up not at the very bottom, but certainly in the bottom quartile of Transparency International's um, uh, Corruption Perception Index. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, a definite laggard in that area. And in terms of the rule of law, well, what's more notorious in Cambodia than a corrupt uh, judicial system, one that isn't independent, one that takes orders from uh, the executive branch to go after whoever has been targeted for uh, arrest. Uh, even today, a senator has been arrested uh, <clears throat> from the opposition party for posting on Facebook a uh, treaty that uh, that apparently was 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 fake or whatnot. And so, um, I don't know whether his parliamentary immunity had been lifted or uh, if they even bothered with that process. Uh, he's, he's, he's currently under arrest. Um, then you've got, you know, every day uh, all kinds of uh, incredible uh, injustices uh, involving the courts. So that's definitely an area where, uh, where uh, there, hasn't, there continues not to be success and there continues to be essentially impunity. In the second chapter, you tie this discussion of corruption uh, and government ineffectiveness into the role of oligarchs, the, the clientelistic style of politics in Cambodia, and the problems to do with taxation. Can you uh, speak to some of the aspects of the second chapter that, that tie into these right. themes? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's really uh, the idea there is that the oligarchs, the Aknyas of Cambodia, these are the tycoons they've been given official peerage title, um, is, um, you know, they're, they're, they're really quite um, interesting to study. I mean, I call it the Aknya economy uh, because it really, ha- it really appears to be an economy run by, uh, by these tycoons that, that, um, that, that essentially control different sectors. So, uh, you know the, the garment sector. There are certainly tycoons there, but it's the one example of a sector I argue that has succeeded or that has um, managed to control the amount of corruption it has to pay, and uh, and as a result uh, was able to survive this process. Um, um, rice uh, is another sector that I study in which I argue. You know, there's lots of potential there. Uh, they could export lots of rice, and I think they're finally starting to do that. But you saw a kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, this kind of uh, jockeying by the tycoons to, to control the sector because of the amount of money that could be made. Uh, the good thing is, in in my view, they haven't been able to corner it, and it has uh, continued to be able to actually escape capture. Uh, so at one point a Ministry of Commerce entity called Green Trade was going to essentially capture the rice sector for itself, and it would have been controlled by the then Minister of Commerce. Uh, but instead, it was thankfully blocked, and there were other entrants that were allowed to export because, you know, there was a rice crisis in 2008. Uh, a lot of countries banned the export of rice, and, and that was used as a kind of an opportunistic moment to to try to take control over the sector, but it didn't last long enough for them to, to succeed. And so they, um, <clears throat> they failed to overtake it. And then finally, the livestock sector in Cambodia, that's another sector that I think had, had lots of potential, but it's really an example of a failed sector in the sense that uh, any hope that, uh, that livestock could be exported 
And at one point, it was exported to Malaysia legally, uh, passing sanitary and phytosanitary standards. Um, was was were dashed because because of corruption. I mean, there, there I described in the book instances of of um, uh, police following trucks full of cattle, chasing them around, wanting a uh, hundred dollars per truck, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, it's it adds up. And then when the when the exporter, a Malaysian uh, joint venture with one of the, ironically, one of the uh, tycoons, um, you know, went on barges instead to try to uh, escape the police. They went on patrol boats chasing after, after his, uh, his barges to, to demand bribes. So unfortunately for the livestock, the livestock sector, it, it hasn't escaped the... Um, the, the, the clutches of corruption and, and, and as a result has, has so far not been able to uh, realize its potential. Now, the argument I make about taxation is really simple. It's, it's this idea that, that um, you know, in a democracy, uh, people pay taxes, uh, they expect services, and, uh, you know, one expects that uh, there, there's a link then between taxation and accountability because, if you if you pay your taxes, you expect services and you expect your government to be responsive to your needs. Now, Cambodia has managed somehow to avoid that because um, it, while it taxes officially, it does not seem to collect uh, a very impressive amount of revenues. Uh, in fact, at the time that I was writing this, it languished at the sort of the African, uh, sub-Saharan African levels of, of uh, tax revenue collection, uh, which was, I think, in the 8% of uh, GDP range. Um, and, and I argue that uh, essentially this is a, a kind of a strange situation. So aid comes in and allows the authorities to to not tax as much because aid substitutes for taxation. And then um, how do the authorities, you know, the authorities could, could simply say, okay, well, we'll take the foreign aid and then we'll, we'll, we'll not tax as much. That, that, you know, that's one way of looking at things. They're, of course, answering to the donors uh, more than, than, than they would be to the taxpayers. Uh, but, of course, that's not what the authorities only do. What they also do is they then go off into the unofficial tax uh, racket and... Uh, are able to collect hundreds of millions, and now it's estimated even as high as ten percent of GDP uh, in, uh, in in corruption money. So, uh, effectively, they've turned uh, what would have been a um, you know a normal country that, that 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 taxed a reasonable amount into one that taxes eight percent unofficial uh, officially, and then possibly another ten percent unofficially, um, and uh, and doesn't of course use. Ten percent of GDP to to develop itself. It, it uses it for you know the officials that collect the money use it for consumption and for um, uh, politicking, buying votes and things like that. And, you know, some of that does return to the villages when when they, uh, the politicians come back with gifts and so on. But but it's not not nearly as systematic as if it were an actual public service uh, like. You know, hospitals and schools that don't require students to pay bribes or patients to pay before being, being uh, admitted, for example. So donors are, in a way, kind of uh, subsidizing uh, the authorities' ability to continue this regime and, um, and, and in a way, uh, preventing the accountability that's required from the link between taxation and, uh, and, and uh, people and, and their government uh, through democracy. But are you implying by that that absence of this level of money coming in in the form of aid from abroad, a, a superior system of taxation would emerge? It seems to me that there are many aspects of this story, some of which you spell out in the book, and it's mm -hmm. not just a problem of tax exemptions or relatively low amounts of tax formally collected, but even you describe how it's cumbersome to pay tax, that there are uh -huh, right. enterprises yeah. that try to pay tax and finds that it's more trouble than it's worth. Right, is, right. Is because it all part of the same story or are there other strands here that somehow we're not catching hold of? Well, I think, I think it is, you know, I, I, I doubt that it's a systematic attempt 
to uh, prevent the payment of taxes. Um, if that were the case, then people would be better off in, in, in some ways, at least. You know, like if, if somebody is trying to pay their taxes and is being told, we can't be bothered counting your money, which is what's, what, what I describe in the book has happened. But I don't think that it's at the level of the policymaker is saying, we have to stop them from paying taxes. We have to stop them from paying taxes. No, what they're doing is they, they want their bribe money to count your tax uh, payment and, and they, they can't be bothered to, to do so. So, so you've got to pay somebody to then you know, transfer the money over into, into the treasury's account, um, a bank account, so that you don't even have to show up and wait all day to have the money counted. But, but I guess what I'm getting at is, is really that, that, um, that corruption has become so pervasive that it's even infected the very sort of institutions that are supposed to be collecting taxes. I mean, one would think that uh, collecting taxes would be like, uh, you know, something that, that you'd want to do. I mean, you, that, you, that, that as a government, you would want to make sure that it is as easy as possible for people to pay their taxes uh, and not make it difficult for them. But instead, the short-sightedness of the authority seems to uh, linger around the area of how to, how to, how to at every point of, of entry, how to make it, you know, how to, how to put a little barrier. So I'll just give you another example. You know, I, I, I return to Cambodia a couple of times a year. And uh, while it used to be nearly 100% of the time that I would be asked to pay a bribe uh, at the immigration counter, um, it's now probably more like 50%. But the problem is that it's even 50%. I don't know, you know, out of two times... Uh, going in and coming out, which ones I'll be asked to pay a bribe for. And so as a result, I'm just, you know, stressed out and, and, and angry uh, whenever I'm about to land because I know there's a good chance that I might be asked and whenever I'm about to leave because, again, there'll be a good chance that I'll be asked to pay a bribe. And this is despite a sign on the immigration booth saying no need to pay anything here and it's written in English, it's written in Cambodian, it is supposed to communicate the idea that, you know, there's, there's, this is voluntary. Of course it's voluntary. I mean, they call it tipping. But uh, I don't know of too many government officials across the world that would uh, stoop to that level. And um, I jokingly say that they should simply just put a tip jar next to their, on their counter and, and let people decide whether they want to tip them or not. But uh, make it transparent at least. Don't turn it into a little uh, bit of a... Uh, under the table transaction every time somebody returns, um, but uh, yeah, you know it's it's uh, it's it's awful and and it's not happening. See, if it's if it were only happening to Cambodians, it'd be one thing. But then it started happening to foreigners as well. Uh, Americans visiting Cambodia being asked to tip, uh, and then writing letters to newspapers as a result, and then Chinese Chinese visitors being asked to tip and. And, and being told they have to go to the back of the line unless they're willing to put in a, uh, you know, a few yuan uh, tip. And, and, and unfortunately for, for, that, for that situation, the, uh, the, the Chinese visitor was a journalist for, for global, uh, global Times and then wrote an article about her, uh, his or her experience uh, complaining about Cambodian corruption at, at, at the airports. Let's move on because we're... Um running short on time. The, the third chapter, you offer a case study of avian flu. Why was this case study important and useful for you? I, I happened to be uh, studying at the time and still do the issue of, of how countries uh, declare or not declare outbreaks. And so uh, it gave me the opportunity to examine uh, one situation, you know, Cambodia had an outbreak of, of avian flu and, and, and several people died, continue to die uh, annually. Um, and at that, at the point in time in which I'd written this uh, chapter, the, the interesting thing was that Cambodia was, um, was receiving a per death more money than, than, than other countries. It was, it was getting quite a bit of support. It had managed to wrestle uh, resources from, from donors in a way that, that uh, suggested that, 
that it had uh, portrayed itself as, as really, a, you know, quite a basket case in terms of unable to figure out even its first victim, for example, a young woman who died in a Vietnamese hospital and whose um, sickness had to be revealed by the Vietnamese authorities to the Cambodian government as a, oh, by the way, <laughs> one of your citizens came across the border and, and died in our hospital and she had avian influenza. And then in, in quick succession, the next at least seven victims uh, die, and and finally the first to survive is this is this uh, guy who's discovered by uh, the U.S. Naval Area Medical Research Unit too. So you know a, an external uh, party and uh, an external entity operating in Cambodia doing uh, these these studies uh, randomly stumbles upon a victim of avian influenza and and reveals it to the authorities and and this is this is the first person to survive and the next one is also found by namru too and and survives and and uh and it, it portrays i think a very interesting sort of uh, uh uh situation in which you know a country like cambodia you know has uh has picked up a disease that that some even argue might be the beginning of of the next pandemic and and how, how does a country like Cambodia deal with that? Um, how does it, how is the angle itself? And, and also, why does it refuse to do the one thing that seems to make sense, which is, you know, to incentivize uh, its farmers to report outbreaks of, of potential avian influenza to actually compensate those farmers when the authorities come to, to cull their poultry, so to kill, to kill their poultry. Yeah. Instead, Cambodia decides to, to in, in this interesting case, to, to deviate from the, um, the desires of the international community and to instead refuse to compensate, which then disincentivizes all aspects of, of, uh, of actually re, you know, reporting because you know, if, you, if you do report something's wrong with your poultry and they come and kill it, kill your poultry, you'll get nothing. Um, so why would you ever do that? You'd want to sell off as quickly as possible if you notice the problem with your poultry so that you could get rid of it and get some money at least instead of losing your shirt. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a case in which you, you can get your hands dirty and, and kind of see how, um, how a new problem uh, is tackled in Cambodia and, and how the authorities kind of take advantage of the donors in, in, in that sense. Uh, you know, taking as much money as they can while not doing essentially uh, the stuff that the donors wanted them to do. But you, you don't let the donors off the hook or that much best the way I read it in the chapter. One of the things that you argue is that although donors were concerned about this culling without compensation, as you put it, at the same mm-hmm. time, the priority for the donors was um, avian influenza as a global emergency, as a health threat at an international level in which there was a high level of self-interest. And so ultimately those concerns took priority over the needs and interests of the poor farmers who were affected. They did, absolutely, absolutely, yes. So, so you know, donors are selfish, right? They're not there as a simply altruistic uh, uh, do-gooders, uh, they're, they're there, uh, and it was especially apparent in this case, to stop a disease from coming across uh, the ocean and to their country. And, and if it meant that the poorest people in Cambodia were going to, as a result, lose their livelihoods, uh, well, too bad. I mean, it was seen as a necessary evil. Uh, and regardless of the fact that the authorities, you know, were told, if you go forward with compensation, we'll help you. But the authorities just didn't want to do that. So, so the donors were willing to make a, essentially a deal with the devil and say, okay, well, you know, you, you get rid of the problem. And even if people's lives are, you know, if the cure is worse than the disease, uh, then it's... Yeah, that's essentially what happened. It's, uh, the the solution caused, I think, at that point in time, more damage than, than the disease itself. I mean, a few people uh, certainly died, but lots of uh, uh, people's livelihoods were destroyed as a result. 
subtitle of the book, as I've mentioned already, is How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy. And it's in Chapter 4 that we get to the topic of shallow democracy, as you describe it. What is this shallow democracy? And again, what's the part that foreign assistance has played in creating this uh, this low-quality democracy in Cambodia? Right. We call that. <laughs> well, that's, that was an interesting case study in which I looked at um, the arrests of uh, human rights and, and labor rights activists and how, um, how democracy-promoting promotion organizations uh, went about trying to, um, trying to get Cambodians riled up and, and maybe create, in their minds at least, what, what they saw as a potential um, you know, velvet revolution or uh, orange revolution, whatever, whichever color you want, um, out of Europe, Eastern Europe, um, that they'd experienced, uh, and, and, and to see the same happen in Cambodia. So it's, it's interesting because, because um, there, was, there was what I observed to be a lack of recognition among these promotion, democracy promotion uh, organizations with respect to Cambodia's history, a total lack of you know, understanding that Cambodia had just come out of a genocide uh, a, dec- a few decades earlier, and now they were saying to protesters and to leading uh, activists, you know, it's not so bad. Jails in Cambodia, this notorious place are prison isn't so bad. Look at um, they were saying, look at Kam Saka. He's in a he's in a cell with a television, uh, which he's sharing with this um, uh, human trafficker. Uh, who had become notorious as uh, uh, as 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 he had you know special privileges, but what you know, wasn't mentioned was the others were actually in cells with a bunch of uh, you know with a bunch of prisoners sharing um, uh, all the facilities and 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 suffering from potential exposure to tuberculosis, for example. Uh, but for a lot of a lot of these um, organizations, they they just see it as a kind of uh, as a kind of opportunity to uh, to promote their agenda, and and uh, and they don't understand that uh, that it's not that easy. You can't just get people to go to the streets and and protest, and and if they get end up in jail, it's okay because you know again this mentality of you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Uh, well, that's how that's how genocides happen because um, <clears throat> because even in the 1970s, uh, I remember as a as an undergraduate writing my honors thesis about Western academic supporters of the Khmer Rouge, there, there were sympathizers, academic you know, supporters of the Khmer Rouge, who wrote things like, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. And, and the, by this they meant, you know, some people are going to have to die in the process of, you know, revolution. And, and, uh, and of course, it's, it's, it's just a lack of understanding as to, you know, uh, the effects, uh, especially when they can, these foreigners can get on a plane and leave the country whenever they want. Uh, the irony, of course, is that they they have complete freedom of movement and travel, and and they can be out of there at a moment's notice. But the Cambodians who have to pay the price can't do that. Well, in the Khmer Rouge period, at least one didn't succeed in that respect. But um, perhaps we, we shan't go back to that time, but concentrate on the present. And um, before we leave this chapter behind us and go to your conclusion, I wanted to, to draw out one aspect of the chapter, and that's that you emphasize how a lot of the, the aid is delivered, uh, certainly to CSOs, to civil society organizations, but also to uh, pillar institutions of the state or to projects that are involved in state-building activities around these pillar institutions. What are the difficulties that emerge, or are there indeed difficulties that emerge for the democracy in Cambodia out of this uh, uh, orientation of, of delivery of aid towards those institutions? Well, you know, the, the first the first problem is that there's a lack of sustainability, right? So, you know, these CSOs uh, receive uh, money, and 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 then the vicissitudes of donors change, and and so they, you know, the one, what's fashionable one day changes to another a few years later, and 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 they have to scramble. So they're donor driven. Uh, they they don't have they don't own 
exactly what it is uh, they'd like to do because they basically have to jump at a moment's notice and try to continue to uh, to please their donors. Uh, USAID, for example, has supported uh, democracy and, and and governance for a number of years, but but um, but you know one day the prom- democracy promotion uh, organizations are in favor and and are being told to. You know, speed things up on, on 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 the demonstration front or the the support of the opposition, and then another it might be, well, we're you know we're uh, we're not seeing results, so we've got to we've got to change tactics, and and it's understandable. I mean, Einstein did say that, you know, insan- the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and and, and expecting a different result. But um, but what I see is, of course, uh, you know, relatively few donors still. Uh, willing to play that, uh, to, to stick it out and, and, and continue to support these uh, sorts of activities. Um, increasingly, you see co-optation, you see a kind of uh, a resignation that uh, it's better to work within the system uh, with the regime than to try to encourage reform from outside. And, um, and, uh, and so you make uh, all kinds of uh, maybe compromises as a result. Uh, Deals that you might not otherwise, um, but um, but I, I generally speaking, you know, the funding picture is, has been bad for for aid for for quite some time, and and uh, especially for U.S. foreign aid, it, it just hasn't you know, as a I think as a inflation adjusted uh, uh, measure, it, it just hasn't gone up dramatically at all. It, it stays at about the same, and if 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 in fact it were adjusted for inflation, it would be uh, on, on, uh, in decline uh, over the years. The conclusion of the book is quite prescriptive. What are some of the recommendations that you have for dealing with the issues that you describe? And perhaps have you reflected on them in the period since you wrote the book? Um, and which leads us into my my next question as to what you've been doing in the meantime and what we can look forward to from you next. Right. So, I mean, actually, I haven't looked at my prescriptions in quite some time because, um, frankly, I, I uh, as you can see, I talk quite a bit. And so I haven't even reached, uh, I, I, I seldom ever get to that point where I'm actually able to, uh, uh, to uh, discuss those prescriptions. But, but, you know, a few of, a few of the ideas um, are, for example, that that, that uh, policymakers and, and donors should be you know, uh, imposing stronger consequences for corruption. So, making uh, punishing countries for acts of corruption uh, instead of, say, of turning a blind eye, for example. So, when you know, the Global Fund discovered corruption in, in its uh, projects in Cambodia. It, it, it really tried to, uh, to 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 make the authorities pay back that money, and and I think that's a good thing. I mean, I, I think that when corruption does happen, um, there ought to be a public accounting of it, and then you know some some sort of redress. Uh, uh, there are lots of different examples where kind of country where donors um, instead choose to kind of you know uh, sweep things under the rug and ignore the problem. Um, also, that, that uh, policymakers or donors should recognize the importance of collective action to overcoming sexual problems and, and, and finding ways to encourage such action. There, I'm thinking about problems in, in, in the you know, livestock sector, for example, where you know in Cambodia and agriculture, there's there's been there's just a lack of trust. So, so social capital has been destroyed. How do you get people to work together? How do you get people to actually build a, a co- cooperative? Uh, 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 how do you get them to cooperate and 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 do things together? Not, of course, referring to a commune because that would be bringing them back to the past and 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 the experience of the Khmerovich, but to to essentially work together as farmers so that they can have more power instead of being divided and and as a result conquered. Um, so donors can have, I think, more of. Um, more of an impact uh, on collective action than they realize. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, uh, strengthening civil society as a counterweight to corruption is, 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 is another idea. Now, civil society is still, you know, fairly weak. Um, 
it, it, there are new there are lots of organizations, but even in the recent example of the NGO and uh, assembly law uh, that was passed recently, uh, while the NGOs protested, the real danger was really to non NGOs uh, entities that that bring people together but aren't necessarily registered, and you're already seeing the effects of that. There's a group that's that fighting some sort of eviction somewhere in Cambodia, and, and they've already been told that they, they'll be arrested unless they register. And, and, of course, this is where the problem comes in. If their registration is refused, then they're technically in violation, or if they're made to pay bribes to register, they'll be unable to, um, to continue their activities. So this is another way of controlling people, controlling uh, uh, large numbers of people, and, and it's essentially intimidating them into not, uh, not going up against the state or against companies that have grabbed their lands, for example. So those are, those, are the, those are some of the original prescriptions. I would say you know, what, some of the things that, that I've certainly seen since then involve, you know, uh, I think the, the fact that, that the authorities can, you know, are improving now uh, uh, their collection of taxes. Um, I think they realize that with a growing economy, you really do have to keep it up because if you don't, you'll shrink uh, in terms of a percentage of GDP, uh, tax revenue as a percentage of GDP. Um, and, and, and I think they're getting sort of the message that, you know, just the, the petty corruption needs to be curtailed. I think it's a dream to expect it to end completely, but curtailed. Um, so, uh, so th- I think there's a realization that that the more uh, the more you scare away tourists and, and visitors who are bringing you money, uh, because because you are not behaving normally, essentially at the airport, uh, for example, the the, the the more counterproductive it is, and the worse Cambodia's reputation will be globally for uh, for this, these kinds of shenanigans. So, um, so I think. I think there's there's some waking up there, uh, and certainly the biggest of all was the outcome of the election uh, two years ago in July 2013. Uh, the surprise, uh, the surprisingly strong um, outcome for the opposition party, and the message that this sends for the ruling party that that even if they control uh, TV stations. Even if they control radio stations, most except one, really, uh, Beehive Radio, control them on Sanando. And a lot of the newspapers, overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelming majority of the newspapers, they can't control all information. They can't control Facebook, for example. They can't control how people communicate with other people. And they've sort of let the genie out of the bottle already because, you know, I think at this point, if they start trying to curtail access to social media, uh, people won't stand for that. So young people got the message, certainly, that um, uh, the opposition leader, Sam Rangzi, was returning to Cambodia. And even though the you know, TV stations didn't mention even his return, uh, they showed up in uh, 200,000 strong for that day. Uh, and it, it really showed that, that, that it really doesn't matter what they stop from being broadcast. Uh, social media will break through. And, uh, and that's, that's a whole other ball game that the authorities are now trying uh, belatedly to get into with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with young, with the youth um, and, uh, and controlling uh, some of the, the information they get. And in a couple of minutes, what are you working on now and what can we look forward to next? So the, the work that I started with the, uh, the avian influenza chapter has uh, culminated in a series of articles that I hope can be assembled as a book uh, sh- shortly, uh, essentially looking at the response of countries like Cambodia, Indonesia, Thailand, Kenya, Peru, uh, and Mexico to outbreaks of diseases. So, you know, how did Mexico react to swine flu and why did it react in a certain way? What explains a country's um, desire to be public with respect to its uh, uh, outbreak of a disease versus silent? Uh, and, you know, why would a country like Indonesia, for example, not want to share 
viral isolates essentially uh, viruses with with the rest of the world in ex- because of course it wanted to have uh, you know vaccines uh, in exchange for uh, sharing those viral isolates so essentially looking at the securitization of health um in 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 this uh in in, in the world today and how it went from something that was you know indisputable uh something that everyone should cooperate with to suddenly something that you know Indonesia has refused to cooperate on calling viral sovereignty over its uh, virus samples and, and others also realizing that, you know, they're not going to stand idly by uh, and give away the only thing they hold that can give them access to vaccines later on uh, if, if they don't have a, an agreement a priori for, uh, for sharing of, of the benefits from, uh, from, from, from that exchange. Fascinating. Well, we look forward to that work and uh, what other work you have coming in the years ahead. So, so Paul Ear, it's been a pleasure to talk with you today about aid dependency in Cambodia. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. And thank you to everyone for listening. Please join me again for our next meeting with an author on new books in Southeast Asian Studies. And if you have time, check out the archive of interviews that are already online, available via iTunes and the show website, New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, or one word, dot com. Hey,